The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. It can be found on page 920 in the Black Bibles. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real but thought he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Cindy. Thanks, John, for reading for us. Welcome, y'all. My name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King. Really good to see all of you here. Um, we have a special visitor I just want to welcome today as well. She's in town for a wedding yesterday, but you may have seen an email that came out um, earlier this week that we have a new women's ministry director headed our way in June. So Mary Henley Green, could you give like a little wave just so everyone see you? Yeah. Welcome, Mary Henley. Did you want to come do that song you wrote about starting in Houston now or later? Just messing. Never, no, no, later, later, later is good. 
we're going to have fun. It's going to be fun. I can't wait for y'all to get to know Mary Henley. She is awesome. Uh, she loves Jesus and loves people so well, and I think she's going to be a huge blessing to our church. So welcome. Thanks for, thanks for doing this. Um, if you are visiting for the first time, one of the things I want you to know about this church is that everyone here, including people who've been coming here for 24 years, all of us think that we, need a, we have a great need for a savior at this church. Um, we are all on an equal footing in our need for a savior. We also believe that the Bible tells us that we have a great savior for our need. And so as we gather around his word now, let's, let's ask that the Lord would help us to see that. So would you pray with me? Lord, we do ask that you would help us to see both our need for you and your great provision uh, for all that we need. And we pray that you would do that now by the power of your spirit as we look at your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I think that for many of us, we often don't hear things that are told to us honestly because we're just moving quickly through life. The hard time slowing down to hear an honest truth. I was reminded of that one night when we were getting the trap kids all settled for bed. And y'all, we have five kids. Bedtime is frantic, okay? It's frenetic. It's all over the place. Um, they're preacher's kids. You pray for us, all right? So we're... We get, we get them settled in, and we finally kind of get um, everyone in bed, and I go and lay down next to one of my daughters. I'm kind of laying on the pillow looking at her, and she's looking at me, and we finally kind of slowed down, just looking at her. I'm like, I love you, sweetheart. She looks back at me, and she goes, Daddy? I'm like, yeah, yeah, babe, what's up? Your breath smells like a wet dog. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that honest truth you just gave me. It slowed down. I could hear it. I'm going to start flossing more. Here we go. Sometimes we've got to slow down to hear honest truth. And I think that every time I've read this passage in my life, I have read it too quickly. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a huge blessing for me to study this passage this week uh, and to slow down and to really think about what God has for us in this passage. Uh, because one of the things that I love about the Bible and one of the things that I think we see in this text is that the Bible is super honest about the human experience and about the discomfort of the human experience, the suffering that we face in the human experience, even the mystery in the discomfort and the suffering but often we move frantically past it or we want to get distracted away from that or glaze over it. We don't like walking slowly through it, through the mystery and through the suffering. But what I want to ask of you is that you would slow down and think about the circumstances in this story because I actually think after studying this, I think this is the darkest day in the early church's life. This is their worst day that they've had so far. Think about this, the darkest day. It's my first point. In the spirit of moving slowly, we're just going to go point by point. So I'm going to tell you where we're going. Just point one, the darkest day. So we see King Herod. This is not the same Herod that we've run into before. His grandfather, Herod the Great, is who tried to kill baby Jesus. His uncle, whose name was Herod, um, 
Antipas is the one who was part of Jesus' trial that led to his crucifixion. This is Herod Agrippa I. And we see in verse 1 what we're so, I think I've been so quick to move past in reading this, is in the very first verse, it says Herod laid violent hands on the Christians that were in his city. And I want you to imagine what that must have been like. If you were living in a city where the person who had all the power was laying violent hands on people in the church that you love, that you know, who've maybe been in your home or taken care of your kids or brought you a meal when you were sick, that's who violent hands are being laid upon by the powers that be. That's their experience. And it is, it had to have been a mystery to them. Like, why is God letting this happen? It is a mysterious providence of the Lord. Providence meaning God is in control of everything. And that means when something horrible like this is happening, we actually believe that he's still in control. But not only does Herod lay violent hands on the church, the next thing that we read is that James dies by the sword. And in other translations, we, we get that teased out a little bit more of what that, what that was. James was beheaded. And I want you to think about what that must have been like for the church because James, James was one of their key leaders in the early church. Jesus spent more time with Peter, James, and John than he did with anybody else in his ministry. And now, James has been beheaded. He's been lynched with an unfair trial, no trial. Peter is awaiting the same fate. The only reason Peter hasn't been killed yet, it says when he was arrested, it was the days of unleavened bread. For the Jews, it was unlawful to kill, to execute anyone during the days of unleavened bread. That's actually the same time, that was the same week after the Passover when Jesus, rather than the Jews killing him, they handed him over to the Romans because just like with Jesus, it was the days of unleavened bread. And so Peter's not thinking, I'm gonna get off better than James did. He knows what's coming to him. And it's a dark mystery of God's providence. What is God doing? And now the church has one of their key leaders beheaded. The other key leader in their church is awaiting that same fate. And the third key leader in the church, John, has just gone through the trauma of seeing his brother beheaded. And that's not an image that you shake. He's gonna live with that the rest of his life, which is a long life. He's going to live with that dark providence of God for the rest of his life. And this is where the church finds themselves. Perhaps you know what this is like. A day of deep grief. A day where it feels, it almost feels like the grief, it, the grief is so tangible, you can feel it in your body. You can feel it in your chest. It, it maybe weighs you down so much that you can't get out of your bed. A grief that maybe causes you to, to be unable to stop crying or unable to start crying because you're in such shock. That's the kind of grief that this church finds themselves in. 
And y'all, it, it would have felt so senseless to them. Like the way that we think about how God works, like we think like, okay, like get your key leaders in place and get some momentum going. And that's how, like they, they, if they were thinking that way, the momentum and key leaders gone. Their key leader has just been beheaded and the other one has just been captured and the other one is in serious trauma. What is going on? Why has James been cut down at such a young age? Why would God allow this to happen? And there is a tension in the dark, mysterious providence that we find themselves in. And the Bible is being honest about it. It's being honest. And maybe you have felt that tension before. Where you, where you ask yourself, God, Yes, God, you could, you could do something about this if you wanted. Why not? God, you could open my womb. Why aren't you? God, you could change the heart of my child or my grandchild that we have poured so much into, so much love, so much gospel truth. We have poured into them. You could bring them back. Why haven't you? God, you could have spared my friend from dying. Why didn't you? What are you doing? And the Bible was honest with this tension as we see in this passage because we see that actually sometimes God does rescue us from our present suffering because that's what happens with Peter. It doesn't happen with John and yet Peter gets point two, Light in the darkness. There is light in the darkness here in this passage. Peter, who's held in prison, who's awaiting, who's awaiting his execution, he's in the darkest of situations. Verse four says he, there's four squads of soldiers guarding him. He's chained between two soldiers. There's sentries guarding the doors. It is a completely and utterly hopeless situation that Peter finds himself in. And it's in that dark night that the light comes in. It's there where God wants to show up in Peter's life. In verse 7, the angel arrives and we see light fill his prison cell. And it's surprising there's some kind of funny parts of this. Like, Peter, Peter doesn't even understand what's happening to him until verse 11 when he gets out into the city and the angel disappears and he's kind of just there. He's like, oh, I've actually been rescued. It is a shocking rescue. The disciples are shocked by it. They don't even believe it's, it happened. When Peter comes up to the door and he, you know, he's knocking on the door and this little servant girl, Rhoda, comes and she hears Peter behind the door. and She, runs, she doesn't let him in. It's kind of funny. She, she's so shocked. And then she runs and tells the disciples about it. And the disciples say, you're out of your mind. No way. Verse 15, you're out of your mind. And you know what's interesting? The disciples are gathered. They're praying. They're probably praying for Peter. And I just wonder, how many things have we given up on thinking that God could change? Because the disciples seem to have 
given up on it. Even stuff that, how many things that maybe you still pray about, but, but you actually don't think God's gonna do anything about it? Because that's what happens with the disciples. Perhaps you have a health condition that you've prayed about for years and years, and you just kind of think, I mean, I'll, pr- I'll pray about this some, but God's not gonna do anything to change it. Or maybe there is, maybe there's a struggle Maybe there's a sin that it has just, it has been a thorn in your side your whole life. You can't shake it. You feel hopeless about shaking it. Every time we have confession and you get on your knees and pray and you you confess that thing and it just feels like you are powerless against that. God's never gonna change that, no matter how much you pray. Or maybe, maybe there's people that you want to know Jesus. You want them to know the good news of Jesus and you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed, but you just, you don't think God's really going to do anything. That's kind of where the disciples are here. But I also want you to see <clears throat> the other surprising thing about this passage is how different Peter is. In this story where he finds himself during the weeks of unleavened bread and the other story in the Bible where we see Peter in the weeks of the unleavened bread. He's a different person. He's completely transformed. And the way that you see that is his anxiety in the first story and his lack of anxiety, his peace in the second story. I want you to consider what Jesus says about anxiety. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Okay, so, but how do we not be anxious? <laughs> Just stop, right? Just stop. Just don't do it. No, then he gives us, he tells us how. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The way, that, the way that we fight our anxiety, the remedy to our anxiety, better said, that Jesus gives us is to consider the providence of God. To consider that he is actually in control. He's so in control, he is clothing and feeding the birds. And the last time that Peter was awaiting a trial during the days of the unleavened bread, the last time we see that when he's awaiting Jesus' trial, Peter is filled with anxiety. He's so filled with anxiety, he's, he, he's sleepless. He can't go to sleep. He stays up until the rooster crows, famously, after he denies Jesus three times to a servant girl. He can't sleep. In this story, when he's in the midst of a dark providence, mysterious providence. He doesn't know what's going on. In the midst of that, do you see what he's doing? He's asleep. He is in a, he's so at peace, so asleep, when the angel comes in and like fills the cell with light in prison, he's still asleep. The angel has to strike him on the side. The angel's like, hey, get up. Wake up, we gotta move, bud. He is asleep. 
He's resting in the providence of God, in the mysterious providence of God. Uh, I want you to think about this. When you think about the word mystery, it's a great definition from Eugene Peterson. He says, mystery is not the absence of meaning. It's the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. So when there's something in your life that feels mysterious, like I don't understand why God's doing this, I may never understand why this horrible thing has happened or why God has allowed this to happen. That's a mystery. It doesn't mean it's absent of meaning simply because you can't comprehend it. Because we believe in a God whose mind and whose ways are far beyond ours. And Peter, Peter is putting his faith in this God. Now, Instead of being afraid of the servant girl, like he was that first week during Jesus' trial, afraid to tell the servant girl who asked him if he was a disciple, and he, rebu- he, he rained down curses on Jesus to prove that he was not a disciple. Now he's confessing to a servant girl, Rhoda, that he is here to be with the church. He's transformed. So, what then, what then is it? How, how can we, what is it that transforms us to trust in this mysterious providence? Why should we? John Flavel was a 17th century Presbyterian minister. He has a great quote about this. But one of the things I want you to know about, about this pastor, because you can just take you know, someone's quote out of context. You've got to know their life. John Flavel had four wives because he saw three of his wives die tragically. He saw one of his children die tragically. And listen to what he says. Providence is wiser than you, and you may be confident it has suited all things better to your eternal good than you could do had you been left to your own option. It is, it is such a relief to trust in the providence of God. So, maybe you're sitting there thinking, though, all right, preacher man, like, he's mysterious, cool, but how should I trust that he's good? And I want you to think what's happening to Peter as he's walking up these stairs to where the disciples are. These stairs that we're told are from the home of Mary, the mother of Mark, who wrote the book of Mark. Most scholars think that those stairs led to the place where Jesus had his last supper with the disciples. Peter's walking up those stairs. You know when you're in like a home where you've been loved really well, maybe you, as a kid, like your friend's house, and it's got the, that smell to it. You walk in that home, you just feel like I was loved here. He's walking up to a house like that. He's walking into a room like that. And the reason that Peter can trust in the providence of God is he's seen Jesus go into the dark, mysterious providence of God before him. Because the last time that he was in that room with Jesus, Jesus was about to go to the cross. Jesus was breaking bread and telling them about the sacrifice that he was going to make for them. And then later that night, he went with Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane where he saw Jesus pray. Jesus prayed about the providence of God and he prayed this, Abba, Father, 
For you, all things are possible. In other words, Father, your providence touches everything. You can do whatever you want in this situation. You know what's coming. You can do whatever you want. And Jesus prays, remove this cup from me. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath that is about to be poured out upon him on the cross. Father, you can remove this cup from me. Will you remove this cup from me, Dad? Abba, remove this cup from me. But then Jesus makes a statement, a commitment to not his will, but to the providence of God. He says, yet not what I want, but what you want. Peter saw Jesus go before him and do that. Walk into the black, dark, mysterious providence of God that led him to the cross that brought forth light darkest day. Y'all, this is the God that we serve. This is why he's worth trusting. There is no other God like this. There is no other God who becomes a man, who walks into the mystery of his own providence to rescue us so that we can have hope in the midst of our suffering. We really can't have hope because of what Jesus has done. And we can be transformed from anxiety and fear to trusting in God's providence. Listen um, to what Peter writes later in 1 Peter 5, later in his life. There's part of this passage that gets quoted a lot to people if you struggle with anxiety. If you talk to like a church person, they'll be like, hey man, cast your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. And that's like, that sounds great. But that's hard to do, right? It's hard to just cast your anxieties on the Lord. How do you do that? And I think what we need to do when we're telling people that is start a little bit earlier in the verse. Because listen to what's said a little bit earlier. The verse right before, same verse actually, the first part of that verse. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What Peter's saying is, listen, you're not going to cast your anxieties on God until you've humbled yourself before him and you realize it's better for him to be in control. I think one of the reasons that so many of us struggle with anxiety and and it's like an epidemic in our country right now is because maybe never before in human history has there been a moment like the one that we're living in where the illusion of control is so tangible. Like it feels like we have control, but we don't. And so we need to humble ourselves before the one who actually does have control and believe that his providence is actually better, that he's better able to take care of us than we are. And he's worthy of trusting because he's gone before us into the pain, into the suffering to rescue us from it. Skeptics skeptics and cynics in the room. Or those of you, when you hit suffering and begin to get skeptical, I just want you to at least consider that Jesus has gone into the suffering too. And there is no other God like that. You know what Peter goes on to say? He's very honest and real about things that we could be anxious about. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what Peter's experience is when he's in that prison. He is, he's about to get devoured. So how, 
how do we go forward in a world like that? He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. And then, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He says, after you have suffered a little while. It's a little while. James, James' providence that he got was much different than Peter's, right? But James suffered a little while. And James woke up in glory. Peter is saying the reason that we can humble ourselves and trust our good king is that he's gone before us so that we may have hope that this suffering is only for a little while. Because glory awaits. So what do we do in the meantime? In the meantime, one of the things that we do is we pray. One of the things that you see that the church is doing, the beginning and the end of this story, is they're praying. They're praying. And you can hear a sermon on like the providence of God and be like, well, I mean, if God's gonna do whatever he's gonna do, then like, why pray? Prayer doesn't do, you know, my prayer's not gonna do anything. He's gonna do what he wants to do. But here's the thing. All these people believe in God's providence. You know who else believes in God's providence? Jesus. Jesus prays all the time, including in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knows that his prayer maybe wasn't gonna change God's mind. But here's, here's what's so good about God. He not only ordains the ends of what will happen, he also ordains the means to those ends and he welcomes us to participate in that. And as we pray, what we learn is that it's actually good that the one who's in control is him. And he welcomes us to bring our petitions to him. So let's be a praying church. Let's be a church that's not ashamed of our doubt because the disciples here are doubting and they record that they're doubting. That they doubt that God could be this good to rescue Peter. You're in good company if you're a doubter because you're in the company of the disciples. The church doubted Peter came back, but you know what? Don't be alone in your doubt because they're not. They're with each other. Don't be alone in your suffering. When you're going through a dark providence from the Lord and you're wondering what's going on, don't be alone because they're not alone. They're gathered together. We need each other. And remember, finally, remembering that this is a passing affliction. To quote Peter, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we give you thanks at your gracious provision of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who by his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, has won what we could not on our own. And we pray that you would give us saving faith to believe in him, that he has done the work that we could not. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.